In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, last Sunday was about how we are to live as we wait for the last day. Uh, But this Sunday is about what life will be like while we wait for that day. Last Sunday was an exhortation for you to actively live the Christian life. That is, to not let your heart be weighed down by dissipation, by drunkenness, by the cares of this life, but to stay awake at all times and to pray. That's what the exhortation was, to actively live that life. But this Sunday is a sermon about passively living the Christian life. That is, learning to endure all kinds of suffering and trouble and disappointments of this life that are brought on to you by no fault of your own. And there is no better illustration of what the Christian life will be like as we wait than the imprisonment of our brother John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is in prison. I'm not going to go through everything now. I'm just going to assume that you know all of the details about this. But the main point is that he is in prison because he called out Herod's sin of adultery. You remember this, Uh, this wicked sin of adultery. Now, John is in prison alone. He has no hope of getting out. He probably knows that he's going to die in there. He doesn't know how, but he knows he's going to die. And so when this happens, John had spent a very short amount of time with Jesus. Uh, He baptized him. He was there to baptize him in the Jordan. But John didn't get to see the the ministry of Jesus, the works and the miracles and everything else from Jesus. So while John is in prison, uh, he hears, uh, we don't know from who, but he hears that Jesus is doing wonderful things. He doesn't witness it, but he hears about it. And while he's in prison, his disciples come to visit him. And then John says, okay, um, I hear Jesus doing all these great things. And here I am in this cell alone. So you go ask him for me. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And the question is this. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another Now, historically, I want to talk about those words. Historically, the church understands those words in two different ways. And the first way is the traditional position on this text. And this is uh, the historical position on this text that John is a strong Christian. And that with these words and in this moment, he's not really doubting. He's simply trying to get his disciples to go and follow Jesus instead of following him. So he's trying to say, go follow him, don't follow me anymore. And he's using this sort of clever and sly way to turn them away from him and get them to Jesus. So essentially, John is saying, look, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. Just go follow Jesus instead. He's the one you should follow now. So they conclude that John isn't doubting, but rather he's pointing the disciples to Jesus. That's the the traditional position on the text. And like I said, uh, it's the traditional position. And there are good Lutheran pastors who hold this position, and I I respect them very, very much. Uh, Luther himself held this position. um, And I've heard the arguments on this position, and I'm not one, you know that I'm not one to depart from these sort of things frivolously or mindlessly. However, I don't buy it. (laughs) I don't buy that that's what's going on here. I think that explanation is pure guesswork. 
I think the truth is that John is doubting. And here's the second view of the text, and this is the, the, the view that I hold to, that John is suffering greatly, and he begins to doubt genuinely. And so I don't think John is asking the question for his disciples. I think he's asking the question for himself. That's the plain reading of the text. And the reason I believe this is that uh, because even though John, uh, Jesus says that John is the greatest man born of a woman, John is still flesh and blood. And that means he can still sin and feel guilty and doubt. Just like every other saint, like Elijah, like David, like Peter, and so on. Even more, the words of the text are plain. (laughs) By the way, since when has John ever spoke in a roundabout way? Ever. Uh, When has he ever minced his words about anything? We know him as the frank and blunt and plain speaker and preacher of the word. Remember, he said to the Pharisees to their face, you brood of vipers. He tells the crowds, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He tells Herod himself to his face, repent. Not in a roundabout way, but plainly speaking. So it's completely inconsistent that that uh, John would now all of a sudden speak in this way, in this clever or hidden uh, sort of way. He's the, he's the kind of man that if he wanted to tell the disciples, go follow Jesus, he would have just said, go follow Jesus. Uh, even more, Matthew the Evangelist never gives us any indication that this is John's real motivation or his motive behind this. Uh, usually the evangelist will say something like that. Nevertheless, if you don't buy any of these arguments... I think Jesus' response to John is the clearest indication of what's going on here. If John is trying to get his disciples to follow Jesus, to go to him and stay with him, then Jesus didn't get the memo because Jesus responds to them saying what? He says, go and tell John. Go back and tell him what you see and what you hear and so on. So Jesus knows that this is a word for John, that he needs this encouragement. Okay, so that is the presupposition for the gospel text today of what's going on. John is in prison. He is doubting. And he does uh, the best thing that anyone could do when they're in that position of doubting. And that is look to the word. That is go to Jesus and hear what he has to say. And then Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, for the sermon, I want to focus on those last words. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The the Greek word here, it's better translated. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Uh, Or um, the the, the word scandalized there means uh, stumbling block. Blessed is the one who does not stumble in the faith because of me. Now, what in the world could that possibly mean? How is Jesus offensive? And how is he scandalizing for Christians? And people, how is it that people would stumble over Jesus? He just listed off all of these awesome, great works that he's doing. And then now all of a sudden he says, well, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over that, over me. So who would stumble on account of him? Now, uh, before getting into that, I'll use an analogy to try and explain this. 
Uh, we've all heard of those stories of people, or we know somebody who's like a huge fan of a celebrity or a movie star or a musician or uh, some, something like this. And then we hear the stories of that person going to a concert or to a dinner or something, and they meet their celebrity or their idol, right? And then what do they say? Typically, they'll say something like, uh, yeah, when I saw this person, I, uh, he's shorter than I thought or taller than I imagined, or he's meaner in real life, or he's nicer in real life, or she sounds better in, uh, in person, or she sounds better on CD or whatever it is. Uh, and the person is surprised and taken back because they see a difference between the person that they think of and the person who actually is. The difference between the, who the person is and who they imagined them to be. Uh, when the celebrities don't live up to the expectation of how they're perceived or imagined, then people become dis- disappointed and disenchanted, underwhelmed and upset because they see that difference. All right, so I think that's what's kind of going on here, what Jesus is saying. That the only reason anyone stumbles over Jesus is if who Jesus is doesn't line up with who they think Jesus is. The only reason someone would be scandalized and offended by Jesus is if the Jesus they believe in is different from the real Jesus is if there's a difference between the Jesus who they between Jesus and who they imagine him to be. And the reason Jesus calls himself a stumbling block is because people have different thoughts and opinions of who he is and they cling to those ideas more than to him. Uh, remember Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks his disciples a question. And the question is Who do men say that I am? And what do they respond? They say, uh, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets. And they all had an expectation and an idea of who that man, Jesus of Nazareth, was supposed to be. Remember John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000. He feeds the whole crowd with a few pieces of bread. And so what happened right after they tried to force him to be their king? Uh, In fact, they followed him the very next day. And the reason they did is because they said, if we can get bread for free from this guy, then let's make him the king and we never have to work a day in our life. So when they found him, the very next day, the crowds come back to him. And Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because your stomachs are full. Eventually, Jesus then rebukes them and says, stop searching and seeking me for this physical bread, but seek after the bread of life. And, I, and you eat of this bread and you will live forever. And then the text says this, when many of his disciples, that massive crowd heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself, uh, but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And the word there is the same, scandalized. Are you scandalized by this? And then later on in the text, it says, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They stopped 
following him because they were scandalized by him because he was not the Jesus they wanted him to be. Do you see that? Uh, People have a false idea of who Jesus is, and then they get disappointed when they learn who he really is and that there's a difference between the two. Uh, People do this a lot. They get angry and offended and stumble and fall when they find out that the God revealed in Scripture is different than the one they have in their heart. Uh, you, you guys have told me this. You, I've got this from you, from you telling me about your coworkers and friends and family, that you would hear things like this. People say, well, my God will never send someone to hell. Or my God doesn't call this or that a sin. Or my God doesn't judge people. Or he doesn't tell them to go to church or whatever it is. So, so people say, God is not about all of those rules and the laws and the kind of commandments anymore. That's over. He doesn't care what you do in your bedroom. Fine. And then they're completely scandalized when Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. People say, well, God doesn't want us to change. He just wants us to come as we are, remain the same. And then they're offended when Jesus says, repent, change, for the kingdom of heaven is near. They'll say all religions lead to the same God. And they stumble when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. They'll say, this is God's chosen nation. Jesus is establishing his political kingdom and they are indignant when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. They'll say, look, I think God accepts everyone into heaven in the end when they die. And they're crestfallen when Jesus says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Now, the thing is that people don't do this only with Christ, but they also do this with the Christian life. They imagine that the Christian life is also supposed to be a certain way. So they imagine that church and life as a Christian is always going to be exciting and stunning and as if every sermon is going to cut to the heart and be thrilling, as if every uh, uh, study of the word is going to be engaging, as if the church is and, and everybody in the church is going to be friendly and well-behaved and kind and loving, and as if the Christian life is going to feel wonderful and great, and it's going to be easy. And then two or three years down the line, they learn that it's not this way. And they see that being a Christian is a lot more difficult than they've envisioned. There's a lot more hardship and trouble. Uh, By the way, this is why churches with spectacular music and lights and programs uh, that that are massive uh, have a massive turnover rate. That statistics show that the modern churches have a new crowd every three to four years. That's about the lifespan of a person in these big box churches. And the reason is that once the novelty wears off, they realize that the Christian life is nothing like the initial impression or feeling when they first got in. Uh, This is also why recent converts shouldn't become pastors. That's what the scriptures say. Uh, So that they're out of this honeymoon phase of the Christian life. 
And so they, that, that they're in it for the long haul, that they don't leave when things become difficult and persecution comes and they don't become puffed up and conceited. Now, people suppose that Jesus is some great self-help teacher or some great, um, someone who gives us health and wealth and success in this life. They want him to be the political leader and mover of social reform. One who came to change the culture, who changes legislature and governments. One who ushers in a utopia. One who champions the victims of the poor. And then when they encounter Jesus, the lowly, meek, suffering servant, they despise him. And they turn around and they leave. And they end up loving their idea of Jesus more than Jesus. Now, I know... I, I know you guys uh, pretty well. I know that the majority of you, the vast majority of you, don't think this way about anything I said previously. But I do know that the majority of you may find yourself in the same place as John the Baptist. You come to church and you believe in Jesus. You trust in his word. You give all you have to the church. You love the Lord with all your heart. And yet you are here suffering with something with no end in sight. You pray for a faithful spouse and you never meet him. You pray for an end to loneliness and you never see it. You pray for an end to lust and you don't experience it. You pray for a financial break, a way out of debt and burden, and you never get it. You pray for healing from your illness and your disease, and it never comes. You pray for peace for once in your family, and you never have it. And prayer after prayer and day after day, you see nothing. And you grow more and more despondent and weary. And when this happens, what do you do? What many people do is they fall away. Like everyone I mentioned before, when they don't see the end of their sorrow, when Jesus isn't the savior they want him to be, they just get angry and turn around and fall away. It's not that Jesus did anything wrong. It's that what they thought about Jesus is wrong. And they think, they think that Jesus is only worthy of praise if he gives us what we want and when we want it. As if he deserves praise only when we see him answer our prayers the way we asked for them. As if we will praise him when he is the God we imagine him to be. And dear saints, this is idolatry. While John the Baptist was in prison, he was on the verge of this, of this very thing. Or maybe even in it, I don't know. But what I do know is that what he did in the midst of it was this. That when he was in his deepest and darkest moment, not getting anything that he was crying out for, he turned to Jesus once more and cried out to him. And so when you are in the same place, you ought to do the same exact thing. And it doesn't matter how many times you've heard it before. You cry out to hear it once again and you hear what Jesus says of himself and you believe that above all things. And you get rid of who your thoughts of who Jesus should be. And you cling to who he actually is. You cast aside what you think he should do. 
and you rejoice in what he does. And you learn that God, that you have a God who can heal every illness and infirmity in your life and take away every sorrow. And yet he is also that you learn that he is also a God who allows you to suffer and even sends you suffering and pain in his time. You learn that the scriptures say through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you learn that he is a God who uses your very pain and your suffering to conform you to the image of his son and that he uses all things for your good. And you learn that the same God who allows you to suffer for your good is the same God who allowed himself to suffer the greatest pain on the cross for your good, to forgive you and redeem you and make you his. That when you suffer, you turn back to Jesus and his word and you learn that he says in this life, in this life, you will have many, many trials and tribulations. But you take heart because I've overcome the world. Dear saints, Jesus is not the God we asked for or we wished for or even the God we imagined. He is far greater. He is far better and far more loving and far more wonderful. We wanted a God who ignores our sins, but we have a God who forgives them. We wanted a God who gives only money and things, but he is a God who purchases us not with gold or silver, but with his blood, with his holy and precious blood. We wanted a God who releases us from our prisons, but we have a God who releases us from the grave. This is not the Jesus you imagined. This is Jesus whom the prophets foretold long ago. The one whom the scriptures bear witness about. This is Christ, the son of God, the lonely one who came to redeem the world. So if you expect Jesus to fix this culture and to make this a great nation, if you expect him to heal your disease now, to take care of your finances right now, then you will be disappointed when he allows you to suffer in all of these ways. But if you expect Jesus to be the God he says he is, and if you expect him to be the one who takes away your sin and your guilt and hell away from you, if you expect him to be the one who will take you out of this veil of tears at your final breath, the one who will raise you from the dead, the one who will wipe away every single tear you've cried in this world, the one who will cover you with the weight of unending and undying glory on that day, the one who will on the last day lift you up far above this nation and every disease and every financial trouble and hardship. Then, dear saints, you will never be disappointed and you don't need to look for another because this is the Christ and he will not let you down. He will save you. He will save you from everything, everything in his time and on his day. This is Jesus and he is exactly who he says he is and he will do everything he promised to do. So dear saints, learn to praise and thank God in this veil of tears. Learn to thank God while you wait to see his salvation. You don't need anything in your life to change. You don't need a thing to move, not an inch, nothing to change, nothing to be different in order to praise him. 
You don't need your finances, your health, or your situation to change. He is worthy of praise and thanksgiving even now. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.